Over 100 years ago, the famous poet Robert Frost penned these words. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood. I looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the other growth. I shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Believe it or not, this poem was originally written as a joke for one of Robert's indecisive friends. But what started as a joke has become to capture what's true of every one of us. When it's all said and done, there are only two paths before us and we must choose. Will we worship the Lord God or little g gods? Will we submit to God's authority or to some other authority? And the path we choose makes all the difference. One path leads to delight and joy. The other path leads to destruction and judgment. These are the choices that King Solomon faced and are the same choices that you and I face every day. First Kings 9 and 10 tells us this. A heart devoted to the Lord leads to delight. And a heart divided from the Lord leads to destruction. That'll be our overarching theme as we walk through this path, this text. And the question is, which path will you choose? Which path does Solomon choose? Well, we've made our way through the first eight chapters of Kings. And remember, beloved, what Kings is aiming to do. Trace the Lord's promise made to King David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 13. Namely, that David's descendant would build a house for God's name and sit on the throne as king forever. And that's what the book of Kings is doing, namely tracing God's promise of a king and a kingdom. We could say it's God's people in God's place, enjoying God's rule and blessing under God's promised king. And in the outset of the book, we see David's son Solomon is anointed king. And David's son builds a magnificent temple for the Lord. And last week, we looked at this this prayer of dedication, perhaps one of the richest prayers in all of Scripture for the glory of God's name. Solomon knows a building cannot contain the infinite glory of the Lord. And yet, God in his kindness chose to mark out this place to remind his people of his presence. And so we ended chapter eight last week with verse 66. On the eighth day, that is at the end of this festival, King Solomon sent the people away and they were blessed. They blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had shown to David, his servant, and to Israel, his people. And it's hard to capture the fullness of the moment. It seems as though all of God's promises are here. They're being fulfilled. The the pinnacle of what God has promised is happening. And we would hope the rest of the book of Kings would read, and they lived happily ever after. 
That would be the case if the king and the people joyfully obeyed. But will they? Or will they travel the path of a divided heart? Let's see, beloved. 1 Kings chapter 9. As we just heard read, as soon as Solomon finishes building the temple and dedicating it to the Lord, the Lord appears to him a second time. And the first thing the Lord says to Solomon is in verse 3. He says that he hears his prayer. He tells Solomon that his eyes and his heart are set on the temple. That is the, the place, the meeting place of a sinful people and a holy God. God's affections are set on his people. You see, the temple isn't meant just to be a religious relic where people show up and perform religious duties to a distant God. No, the Lord is not a distant deity. He is intimately aware of and involved with his people. And we see that as he hears and answers Solomon's prayer. The Lord has made his promise and his position clear, hasn't he? He's committed to the relationship. I hear your prayer. My affection is set upon you. And now they have a choice. It's what follows in verses 4 through 9. You'll notice these verses are presented in the form of if, then. If Solomon walks the path of a devoted heart to the Lord, then he'll enjoy the promised blessing. But if they choose the other path, then destruction will come. Now, to be clear, this, this is not about obedience earning blessings from God. God is not a pinata that we whack with our good behavior, and if we hit him enough times, goodies fall from the sky into our life. That is not what he's saying. Notice, verse 2 comes before verse 3. In other words, Lord has made his promise. I am with you. The rest is, will you enjoy the relationship? Obedience does not earn the Lord's blessings. It's how Solomon, it's how we, it's how Israel enjoy the Lord's blessing. Get that, beloved. Our obedience isn't about earning something from the Lord. It's about enjoying the Lord himself. That's what the Lord is inviting Solomon into. He's telling us a heart devoted leads to delight. It leads to delight. And, And notice that's the focus. Though the temple's been built, That's not where the Lord speaks to. He speaks about the heart. And this shouldn't surprise us. We've seen over and over again, haven't we? Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 8. At every pivotal moment, it breaks in and says, walk in the Lord's ways with wholeness, fullness, uprightness of heart. That's exactly what he says here. Solomon, walk with integrity and uprightness of heart. Solomon, you're to have an honest heart, a devoted heart set on the Lord, doing according to all that I've commanded you. Solomon is to walk to all the Lord commands. God requires nothing less than full obedience to his revealed will. There is no slouching in obedience. And this obedience isn't legalism. It is love. Isn't this what the Lord Jesus himself said? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He tells us in the book of John. 
So if Solomon obeys, he'll enjoy the fulfillment of God's promise made to David, a kingdom that would endure forever, a royal dynasty everlasting on the throne. See, a heart devoted to the Lord leads to delight, primarily delight of enjoying the Lord himself. And the same principle applies to us, beloved. Obedience is how we earn or how we enjoy, not earn. Obedience is how we enjoy the Lord's blessings. The Lord is telling Solomon. He's inviting us to the good life. The good life, beloved, is the joyfully obedient life. The Lord is after your joy. My non-Christian friend, I'm thankful that you're here this morning. And I wonder what you might think about the Christian faith. And if the Lord being about your joy might be one of the things that you think he's after. It's not the only thing, but one of the primary things the Christian faith is calling us to is the fullness of joy. It's not drudgery. It's delight. It's not easy for sure. But it is the path of joy. Right? This is why the Lord calls us into obedient relationship to follow his rule. Think about it this way. Why does the soccer referee enforce the rules of the game? So the players can enjoy playing the match, right? So if the referee could ignore the rules or each player or each team could make up their own, how would they personally want to play? How would that game go? They'd be frustrated. It wouldn't be fun at all. Or why does a skydiver pack a parachute and pull the cord? Why? So she can enjoy the float down to earth. Now, sure, she could ignore the rules and reality of gravity. But it wouldn't end so well, now would it? See, true freedom, true joy is found not in living however we want, but in following the right set of rules. This is what the Lord is calling Solomon and calling us into. So brothers and sisters, may I just encourage you to remember why? The Lord calls us into obedience that we might enjoy him. So realize when the Lord calls us to submit to his authority, to walk in his ways, to keep his commands, it's an invitation to the fullness of joy, living life as it was always meant to be. But if, verse six, but if you turn aside from following me, no sooner is the temple complete do we get a warning of its destruction. And notice, he's not just calling Solomon to obedience, but notice the language moves to include you and your children. In other words, no matter who you are, the warning remains the same. Disobedience leads to destruction. If Israel stops worshiping the Lord God and worships little g-gods, they will lose their, their land, the temple, and the throne. God's telling them, this is what's going to happen. And while this warning is ominous and gloomy, it is also the Lord's kindness. He wants Solomon to know the wages of sin. He wants all of Israel to know what will happen if they disobey. And remember the audience, beloved. One of the things we're trying to help you is, how, how, how do we read this book? 
And remember, Solomon is not a, not a journalism just unfolding events, capturing as they happen. He knows what, to, or, uh, the, the author of Kings knows what happens. And so the, the first audience of this book is experiencing the exile that was promised. That's what they're doing. They're living in the Lord's promised destruction of verse 8, 7, and 8. They are the byword. They are the laughingstock. It's happening to them. And they might be asking, why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? Verse 9, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Do you see how this is a gracious warning from the Lord? As the exiled people read this text, they know the Lord is not capricious. They know the Lord is not just having a bad day and like send them off to their room. No, the Lord in his kindness tells them, listen, a heart divided from the Lord leads to destruction. And that's why you're sitting where you are. This reminds me of a story I shared with you all several years ago. It's from an article that I read in the New York Times, and it was titled, The Hazards of Growing Up Painlessly. It tells the story of Ashlyn, and Ashlyn has a genetic disorder that literally prevents her from experiencing pain. And so when Ashlyn was two, her mother had to wrap her hands to keep her from biting off the flesh of her own hand. There was a time when she was a bit older, and her dad was outside pressure washing the house. Dad turned around to see Ashlyn gripping the engine of the pressure washer. Skin smoldering off. The article says, her life story offers an amazing snapshot of how complicated a life can get without the guidance of pain. Pain is a gift and she doesn't have it. The love of the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He's committed to his people, Israel. Love and exclusivity go together. God cannot and will not sit idly by as his people turn to other lovers. Why? Because the Lord knows two things. Other lovers will not ultimately satisfy. And maybe even more importantly, they are not worthy of the affection the people are given to them. He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy to be worshiped. He alone will truly satisfy. So instead of letting his people continue in painless rebellion, God kindly makes them experience the misery of their iniquity that they might turn back to him. Because he's committed, remember verse two, he's committed. He'll do the hard but loving work of bringing unpleasant consequences for their rebellion, even if his name will be tainted even if it causes his name, his reputation to be ruined for a little bit of time. This is how committed he is. And as Nathan has been reminding us, as Romans and Peter remind us, this is written for our instruction. The Lord wants us to know a divided heart leads to destruction. And in the pain, he's calling us to repent. In the pain, he's calling us to repent, to hate our sin, confess it, and turn away from it because it displeases the Lord. 
So brothers and sisters, when you feel the pain of sin, when sin stings, this is going to be hard, but rejoice that the Lord loves you enough to draw you back to himself that you might know true and lasting joy. So even the promise that disobedience leads to destruction is a good gift from a gracious God. It's like a physician who has to break a bone that he might reset it so it can heal properly. That's the kind of God that we have. This might sound weird to some of you. You may feel no pain, no remorse, no misery because of your immorality. And I would just say in this moment, I plead with you, I plead with you not to confuse the absence of pain and destruction with God's approval. One of the scariest things that could ever happen to us is that God gives us over to our rebellion. Our desires, our passions, we're able to live them out in whatever way we want without conviction from the Holy Spirit. It's one of the most scariest things that can happen to us. And so I would just encourage you, if that's you, plead with God to bring pain. You want to think more about that? I just encourage you to go read Romans chapter 1 this afternoon. Romans chapter 1. Solomon has been given a choice. Two paths are laid out before him. Which will he choose? Chapters 9 and 10 begin to answer that question. How will Solomon choose? Let's see. From chapter 9 verse, uh, from chapter nine, verse 10 to through the end of chapter 10, we read about the glory of Solomon's kingdom. And as we'll see, Solomon is a prosperous international businessman, literally trading cities for gold, building a fleet of ships to travel the world and bring back the world's most precious materials. Jeff Bezos and Amazon have nothing on King Solomon. He's a successful manager and builder. Whatever he desires to build, it happens. He's a man of global fame. Royalty from around the nations are coming to see him and give gifts to him. Look at chapter 10, verse 23. King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. First note, this is exactly what the Lord promised in chapter three. Wisdom and wealth beyond compare. Yet again, we see the Lord's faithfulness. He's committed to his people. Not one word of his promises fail. And so Solomon has every reason to be devoted to the Lord because the Lord has first showed his devotion to him. And on the surface, it seems like everything is grand and glorious. The world is applauding Solomon. Let's dig a little deeper, shall we? Chapter 9, 10 through 12. At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress timber and gold, As much as he desired, King Solomon gave to Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. But when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. 
Remember, beloved, the author has intentions about why he puts certain pieces of text next to others. And so the first thing the author chooses to tell us about King Solomon's reign is what? He gives away land for gold. And evidently, it wasn't a fair deal. It seems as though he ripped Hiram off, taking advantage of a man that was once his friend. So now instead of peace with neighbors, God's blessing, there's frustration. But even more concerning, do you see something more concerning about this? The land was promised by God to Israel. The land was a blessing from God to his people. And now Solomon trades God's good gift for gold of his own. What might this begin to tell us about Solomon's heart? Devoted or divided? Let's keep reading. Verses 15 through 23, we read of Solomon's vast building empire. Look at verse 15. And this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house and the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. And drop down to verse 19. And all the store cities that Solomon had and the cities for his chariots, the cities for his horsemen and whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem and Lebanon and in all the land of his dominion. And it goes on in verse 20 and 21. They give us a bit more details about the labor force, the foreign nations that were drafted to work for Solomon. Goes out of his way to say these weren't Israelites, at least not in this instance. But there is this idea of forced labor and devoting to destruction. And in this, the author is taking us back to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. So just just a side note here, this is not genocide. It's not targeting a specific people because of their ethnicity. And it's not chattel slavery. Barbarically kidnapping peaceful people and treating them as possessions owned as property. That's not what's going on here. It's not good. But that's not what it is. If you go read the book of Judges, these, these were not innocent people minding their own business. They were horrific nations, rebellious in the most inhuman ways. And after century, after century, and after century of disobedience by these nations, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, God brought judgment on them. That's what's happened. If you want to hear more about that, we preached through the entire book of Judges, but we had to deal with all of it almost week after week. So go back our website, Sermons and Judges in 2018, and just listen. But the author's point here is Solomon's building campaign. He built store cities for his chariots and his horsemen. Right? Read in a positive light, we might say he's an astute army general. He's, he's setting up tanks and, and artillery and military bases and, and organizing men into regiments to protect the nations. But when we look deeper, there's something more sinister going on. It's interesting to note that in verse 19, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, conquers one of Israel's enemies that they failed to do. And Pharaoh gives the land to Israel. Pharaoh is giving land to Israel. Solomon is giving land away. Huh. And it's interesting to note, what did Solomon build? Store cities. 
This is the exact same phrase used in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, where it talks about Pharaoh enslaving Israel to build, store cities. In other words, I think the author is saying, he's he's dropping hints, that Solomon is starting to act more like Pharaoh, king of Egypt, than the promised king of Israel. You'll notice that in verse 19, it says, whatever Solomon desired to build. Three times in chapter nine, we see Solomon desiring something. Verse one, Solomon desires to build. Verse 11, Solomon desires gold. Verse 19, he desires to build more things. Every time it talks about Solomon's desires, it's on material things. What might this begin to tell us about Solomon's heart? Divided or devoted? In verse 24, we see that Solomon builds a house for his wife. What a kind and generous husband he is, giving her 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 own princess quarters. What a nice jester, Solomon. Until we remember he did this because she doesn't worship the same God he does. In verse 25, we read this. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord. Through all this, Solomon's going to church. Externally, he's obeying some of the Lord's commands, but increasingly, we see that he's not wholly devoted to the Lord. In chapter 9, finishes with remarks about Solomon's pursuit and accumulation of gold. Again, he builds a ship that makes regular gold deposits. It's like Solomon has Amazon Prime subscription set up and and every month gold is just delivered to his door. It just comes. And we get more of the same in chapter 10. 16 times in chapters 9 and chapter 10, we're told of Solomon's accumulation of gold. 16 times. Temple is barely mentioned. We'll come back to Queen of Sheba in a minute. But for now, I just want you to see that the rest of chapter 10 from verse 14 on is like a, it's like a summary of Solomon's golden splendor. So chapter 10, verse 14, we read, Now the weight of the gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. This week, I was like, how much is that today? So I googled how much is a pound of gold. Gold's about twenty-two dollars or $23,000 a pound right now. So that means... Every year, Solomon had $1.1 billion of gold flowing to him. Every year, $1.1 billion of gold just showing up. And how is the king going to use this? Does he use his power and influence and wealth to bless others? Or does he boast? Well, verses 15 through 23, 22 catalog Solomon's wares. Shields made of gold. You don't use shields of gold for battle. You use shields of gold to boast. Throne, plush, big, magnificent throne, gold. And shouldn't the king drink from solid gold cups? Well, of course. So we read of drinking vessels made of pure gold. Whereas before it talked about how Solomon's power blessed the people. 
That's nowhere present in these verses. At the end, the author's emphasis seems to be on the vast amount of Solomon's gold and how he uses it for his own power, his own pleasures. Be clear, the issue is not the mere possession of gold. The issue is not simply having a big house or luxurious furnishing. The issue isn't being in a position of power and influence. Money and material wealth aren't inherently bad. High positions, influence, having lots of power isn't necessarily bad. In fact, remember the Lord that the Lord is the one who promised Solomon would be king. The Lord is one who promised that Solomon would be wealthy. So in this particular instance, in this particular instance, Solomon's high position and wealth testifies to God's faithfulness. But it appears the blessings from the Lord have become more important than being with the Lord. Why do you say that, Joey? Well, again, it's interesting to note that the temples, the symbol of God's presence with the people, and these final verses that he didn't even mention, it's not even there. The focus is on gold, not God. Solomon seems to be more enamored with the gifts than the giver. And instead of being satisfied with receiving whatever, the, whatever comes his way because of the Lord's promises, it's as though he's scheming and strategizing to get more and more and more and more. Solomon has become more attent on accumulating gold rather than adoring God. And again, I remind us, this is written for our instruction. We could say Jesus summarized 1 Kings 9 and 10 when he said, you cannot worship God and money. There are only two paths. We either love God and use money and power to serve people, or we love money and power and use God to serve ourselves. Those are the paths. What we do with the money in our hands shows what we value in our hearts. And take care, brother. Left left unchecked, our desire for money, material wealth, power, possession, status will entangle our soul, choking out our love for God and for nature. A man by the name of C.S. Lewis has a book he wrote called Screwtape Letters. It's written from the perspective of a demon named Screwtape, and he's writing letters to Wormwood, one of his underlings, on how to distract Christians from the enemy, that is from God. So Screwtape, writing to Wormwood, how to get Christians away from the enemy, that is from God. And in one of the letters, Screwtape writes this, if the middle years for a Christian prove prosperous, Our position is even stronger. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels as though he is finding his place in it, while really it is finding its place in him. That's the danger. The danger is not that we have stuff and status, but that stuff and status have us. Is there anything you desire more than God? A house? a certain brand of clothes or size of closet, a bigger salary number, a more prestigious and powerful job title, a polished lifestyle, a large retirement account, a specific life status. Again, not inherently bad in of itself, perhaps. But if it divides our heart from the Lord, it doesn't end well. See, Solomon had it all, but it wasn't enough. 
it wasn't enough. The same is true for us. And so with, with the kids in here, with, with parents in here, can I just encourage you to help your children navigate this part of life? Daily, just like us, they're going to be tempted to believe that life, happiness, and joy is found in money, possessions, power, and status. And so I would just encourage you to use, use passages like this one to teach them that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions or the accumulation of power. Perhaps also go to have a family devotional this week on 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 through 17. And with the story of Solomon fresh in your mind, consider Paul's words. For the love of money, the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Maybe have a family devotion this week on that piece. Money and material possessions, power and influence can be good things, but they're terrible gods. They do not deliver what they promise. But Solomon goes on. It's not just gold that Solomon is gathering, but also horses and chariots. Now look there at chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common as Jerusalem as stone. Talk about inflation. And he made, clear, he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. Chariots and horsemen would be like tanks and fighter jets. Solomon is amassing an incredibly sized army. And we should be thinking, didn't God promise to protect his people? Didn't Solomon's father David say, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust the name of the Lord our God? Solomon appears to no longer be walking like his father David. Then we read in verses 28 and 29. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q. And the king's traders received them from Q at a price. A chariot can be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And, and so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So the author tells us, not only is Solomon gathering horses and chariots, he's going down to Egypt to get them. Perhaps he's taking advantage of his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter. And he's like, listen, I got an insider trading deal. I can buy low and sell high. I can make some money off these horses. And he's applauded by the world. Good job, Solomon. Way to use your relationships to advance and make money. Good job, Solomon. See, Solomon's captivated by money and power. He'll do whatever he can to get at this point. And without stealing too much thunder from Nathan next week, I must read chapter 11, verse 1 and 3. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Verse 3, he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. The allures of all these things leave Solomon intoxicated. He only wants more and more and more. Do you see the cheap pleasures of sin never fully satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. They never do. It's clear. Solomon's heart is not devoted, but it's becoming divided. And the author has arranged this material to reveal Solomon's shriveling heart. Listen to God's word for the kings to obey 
in Deuteronomy chapter 17. In fact, if you have your Bibles, flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 17. I'll be back a few pages. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Listen to God's word for kings in verses 14 through 17. When you come to the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me. You will indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers that you shall set over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only the king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to where? What is Solomon doing? Return to Egypt to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Do you see what the author has done for us? Three prohibitions for the king. Not to acquire many horses, nor go down to Egypt. Strike one, Solomon. Not to accumulate excessive silver and gold. I mean, silver was as common as rocks. Strike two, Solomon. The king was not supposed to have many wives. And Solomon doesn't, unless you count 700 as many. Strike three, Solomon. And yet, he's going to the temple to offer sacrifices. Solomon thinks he can pick and choose which commands to obey. I'll keep the big external commands, God. I will show my public devotion to you in worship. But on these lesser matters, I mean, money's not that bad. Marriage is a good thing. Why not more of it, right? He's beginning to compromise. And again, I'm reminded of the screw tape letters. And an older demon is training the younger to distract Christians. And he says, you will say that these are very small sins. And doubtless... Like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy, from God. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into the darkness. Murder is no better than cards if cards will do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Between chapters 9 and 11, roughly 20 years pass for Solomon. The decline is slow, but it's real. See, sin, even the smallest one, is like the first step on an escalator. It leads you down quicker than you want to go. So, beloved, Heed God's kindness in this cautionary tale. Heed his kindness. Invite others to correct you. To point out that Jesus is a better treasure. Talk to others where your heart is tempted to be divided. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you a heart devoted to the Lord. Actively encourage others with the hope and the promise of the gospel. And let's not just call each other to heartlessly obey a list of commands but to compel each other with the beauty of Jesus, the greater treasure, that we might seek him above all lesser gods. Let's be a church, let's be a church that reminds you of this. It's not just that we shouldn't 
look to money, power, status, relationship for ultimate happiness. It's that we don't need to. We don't need to. If God has given his only son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross, if the power of sin has been broken in the resurrection, and if by repentance and faith we have the pleasure of being reconciled back to God himself, what more do we need? What more do we want? There is no greater treasure than Christ. And we are his. And he is ours. Beloved, heed God's kindness this morning. Be more enamored with the Lord than you are with stuff. Ironically, this is what captures the attention and the affection of the queen of Sheba. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 13, we read about this queen. She's not a Jew, but a Gentile. She's from the nations. She hears of Solomon and his Lord, and she travels a great distance with lots of wealth to get a hearing with Solomon. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, she came to test him, test Solomon with hard questions. Verse 3, Solomon answered all her questions. So yet again, we see the faithfulness of the Lord. And we see what it looks like to be an honest skeptic. The queen did not immediately believe all that she heard about God's king. But she did do everything she could to see if it was true. You see that? Friend, Jesus says he's greater than Saul. Jesus says he's God's final and forever king. And he has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so so for my non-Christian friend, I ask, are you willing to be like the Queen of Sheba? Are you willing to ask hard questions to seriously consider if Jesus is who he said he is? An honest skeptic opens their mind the same way we open our mouth, to close up on something solid, not just to ask questions. If we question everything, we see nothing. So I just encourage you to ask hard questions. Ask the hardest questions you have about Jesus to the person who brought you here this morning, your Christian friend. They may not have an answer. That's okay. I don't know. Let's, Let's work that out. Come ask me. I may not have an answer, but you can ask whatever you want, and we're happy to walk alongside of you. Well, what about Queen of Sheba? She, she hears Solomon, verse four, there's no more breath in her. Her breath is taken away. When she catches her breath, she exclaims, verses eight and nine, happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. This Gentile woman praises not Solomon, but the Lord. She seems to get what Solomon forgets, that every blessing is from the Lord himself. And that God gave the king because he's supposed to show and spread justice and righteousness. She responds in verse 10 by giving of the wealth, her wealth to the king. And in fact, she's not the only one who comes from the nations to the king. Look at chapter 10, verse 24. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold and garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. This is a fulfillment of what Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple. 
that all the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. The Queen of Sheba is a picture of what could have been. If Solomon would have joyfully obeyed, if Israel would have joyfully devoted himself to the Lord, it would have led not just to their delight, but to the joy of all the nations. But they failed. We'll see as we read the rest of Kings, it leads to destruction. And so we're left asking, is there another king that God delights in and sets on the throne? Is there another king that will perfectly execute justice and righteousness? Is there another king to whom the nations will bring myrrh, spices, and gold? Is there another king whose servants are happy to continually stand before him and hear his wisdom? Is there a people who God loves forever? I believe so. At his birth, the wise men coming from the nations bring Jesus spices, gold, and myrrh. At his baptism, we hear the God the Father saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In his life, Jesus lives joyfully, obeying his father, showing us perfect righteousness. As Jesus hangs on the cross, paying the penalty for sin, what looks like foolishness to the world is the wisdom of God. And at the cross, we behold perfect execution of justice and the gracious offer of righteousness to all who would turn from their sin and trust in Christ as Savior. And now all the redeemed stand before Jesus continually happy because he has saved us and he satisfies us because God loves his people forever. When Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he ascended into heaven and he sits on the eternal throne. And one day soon, beloved, Jesus will return. All tribes, all tongues, all nations, all peoples will honor him as king with their wealth and their riches. See, the queen of Sheba is not just a picture of what could have been. She is a picture of what one day will be. Brothers and sisters, the greater Solomon, Jesus Christ has come. And he's coming again to make all things new back to the way they're supposed to be. God's people in God's place, enjoying God's rule and blessing under God's promised king, the son of David, Jesus Christ. Let this joy before us compel us with hearts devoted to and delighting in the Lord. We won't be perfect, but when we mess up, guess what? We just run back to our perfect king. We just run back to our perfect king. Say, there's my righteousness. There he is right there. For my non-Christian friend, which path will you choose? It makes all the difference. A heart divided from the Lord leads to destruction. But good news, glory be to God. Praise God, hallelujah. A heart devoted to the Lord leads to delight. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is rich, that it is true. Thank you for the soberness of the warnings and the kindness of them. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the King of Kings, that you show us perfect righteousness and justice. Help us live with hearts devoted to the Lord. God, Build us up that we might treasure Christ together. 
We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.